Next on ReachMD, Voices from American Medicine, featuring perspectives, challenges, and triumphs from physicians currently in practice in the front lines of healthcare. Now here is the host of Voices from American Medicine, Gary Epstein. Our guest today is a pioneering female physician in the relatively new specialty of reproductive medicine, a former president of the Medical Association of Atlanta and currently practicing with Reproductive Biology Associates in Atlanta, I'd like to welcome Dr. Dorothy Mitchell-Leaf to Voices from American Medicine. Dr. Leaf, welcome to the show. Thank you, and thank you for having me. I wanted to kind of start a little bit with just a simple question as to what inspired you and got you into medicine. What made you want to be a doctor in the first place? Interestingly, I used to go to the library and probably read about 10 books a week when I was about 10 or 11, and I'd go down the shelf and would read a lot of things about biographies of different individuals or stories about their lives. And one day I came across a book called The First Woman Doctor, and I had thought perhaps I'd be a nurse, but this really intrigued me. So I remember reading the whole thing and saying, wow, women can be doctors, uh, because I'd never met one. So I thought, well, this is interesting. I remember vividly going home after I'd read the book and sitting down at the kitchen table, and I said, Mom, I'm going to be a doctor. And I put my little fist down on the table, and I said, I think that's what I'm going to do. And I'll never forget that. And from that moment forward, that was my quest. And amazingly, I got to do that. That's great. I imagine you have seen a lot evolve and change for women in practice since you started. What kinds of things have evolved and and what kinds of things would you like to see still get better for female physicians? Well, I think, first of all, the fact that we are not tokens anymore, as we were told we were. Uh, I think there were only uh, 10 women in our class out of 130. And of course, now it's 50-50, sometimes in different medical schools, it's 60-40. So that's been wonderful to see. I think that, obviously, I was in the era where they did not appreciate people having children or having families, and there were no concessions made whatsoever for physicians to, you know, consider night call or were you needing to do something. So with your family. So I think that this has definitely changed. Obviously, it's not perfect in every single type of area of medicine, but I know that it has definitely evolved, especially because of the number of women who've been able to do medicine and be able to, in a lot of ways, change it because of the numbers. You chose reproductive medicine as a specialty area. How did you end up in that area of medicine? Well, it's I was an OBGYN, and that's my initial residency program. It was interesting. I went to the University of Louisville. I had actually wanted to be a plastic surgeon, but for whatever reason that I won't get into, I decided that was not for me. You know, I thought that I would rather be in taking care of women. So I finished my residency, and during that time, it just so happened that the program that Dr. Koontz and Kleiner started with hand surgery and microsurgery was right there. And I was able to do research as a resident in microsurgery. And at that time, that was the intro into reproductive endocrinology and infertility was to do microsurgery because we didn't have in vitro. We had no other ways to help people with 
scarred tubes or tubal ligations and things like that. So I thought it was a fascinating area. It was very interesting. I loved the surgery, so I went on and did my fellowship in reproductive endocrinology because of that. That was my introduction into reproductive medicine. It was a fascinating area at that time, but obviously it's gotten a lot <laughs> a lot more progressive since uh, 1979. Tell us a little bit about that. What are some of the things that almost astound you about what's changed since 1979? From what I've learned and what little I know, uh, there have been just major advancements. I'd love to hear a little bit about some of those. Well, I think it started out when I went to my very first national meeting in San Francisco where they presented the work of the physicians in London who had Louise Brown, the first IVF baby. And, of course, that was just astounding to everyone in the entire world. They had worked on it for so long, and they were able to present it at that national meeting there. And so, of course, in the United States, it had not been able to be available until the early 80s, probably 82, 83, when Howard and Georgiana Seeger-Jones brought it over to Norfolk, Virginia. And after that, the area of reproductive medicine just took off. I've been able to be in our particular practice at Reproductive Biology Associates, able to see some fascinating changes where this practice had the very first IVF baby in Georgia, but then we went on on a national basis to be able to have the first ICSI baby uh, in the United States, which was actually mine, which I was very pleased about, back in 1993 where we put one sperm directly in each egg and we had the first pregnancy in the entire Western Hemisphere. Dr. Von Sturgen had done the work in Belgium prior to that, but we were the first in the United States to do that. And then we had the first frozen egg pregnancy in about 1995. So you actually have a child that was conceived through this procedure? Yeah, or my, that, patients. yeah. My, my patient. Your own was. Patients. Yes, okay. My patient was clarify. in 1993. Yeah, yeah. And so from then on, ICSI became pretty much an everyday occurrence now in our lab, which is still fascinating that you can do the micromanipulation and put a sperm in an egg, and it works very nicely to make embryos. I did the first gestational carriers in the state of Georgia, which was very hard to get break through that because of the fact that the world does not understand why, you know, women would possibly want to carry pregnancies and Mary Beth Whitehead had had problems, so obviously that was a different kind of gestational carrier situation, but that we could successfully have embryos replaced into another lady who would carry the pregnancy and then hand the baby back and the couple could have a child. Egg donation started in the United States in 1993 And so that's becoming an everyday event for women when we'd have to tell them they couldn't have children because they were menopausal or perhaps they had premature ovarian failure or for some reason their ovaries had to be removed, whatever, even at a young age, and they weren't allowed to have children. So now with egg donation, which again started in early 90s, that has continued. And our practice actually has been very successful in freezing eggs And we have an egg bank where we keep eggs cryopreserved and patients can go on site and we can actually let them choose which donor they would like to use with baby pictures and be able to have the eggs that are donated already in the bank for them. 
If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Voices from American Medicine on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Gary Epstein, and joining me today, a physician practicing in reproductive medicine, Dr. Dorothy Mitchell-Leaf. Dr. Leaf, you were just talking a little bit about kind of the interaction with patients that have been told that they can't conceive or obviously working with a lot of patients that are having difficulty. I'd love to get your perspective and thoughts on that whole interaction and experience and then the ability to kind of help them through that process and how it impacts and changes their life and outlook. I think it's just the fact that it's such a very, very special kind of practice where you have people who, you know, desperately want children, and I understand that's so important for everyone that does want children to make sure that we can help achieve that dream for them. Some patients have great difficulties, have to go through enormous amount of workups and care. You know, when we finally know that they're pregnant, it's just, you know, everybody cheers and we're all excited about it because we really treasure the fact that these patients are able to uh, achieve a pregnancy, whether it's it only took a couple of months or maybe it took quite a few years. We obviously become very involved in in so much of their lives, and it's very personal. We have a lot of patients who might have pregnancy losses, and we have to go through that roller coaster ride with them. There's nothing worse than us thinking that we had beautiful embryos or did everything correctly and they didn't get pregnant. It's, you know, you feel like you're dashing them to the ground. Well, I imagine now more than ever there's a sense of hope because of all of the new innovation and procedures, you know, since 79 when you started relative to today, a lot more alternatives. Oh, absolutely. I, I think back on all those patients that I tried to help and I didn't have all these technologies to help them, and I, I just wish I could have just gone back and helped them. But so many of them stay in touch with us, and so many patients let us know about their children and I even have now, somebody told me the other day, I've got a couple of my babies <laughs> now have yeah. children, so I've made wow. the lady's wow. grandparents, so I think that's very cool. You know, they're married, or they send me pictures, you know, of the whole families, and, and it's just very, very heartwarming to be able to be part of their lives and have changed things so much for couples and in the entire family, so I think that's been unique. In the area of reproductive medicine, I'm curious about the follow-up with the child that's born, and are there research studies that have been done over time from a clinical standpoint or medical standpoint that looks at whether there's any difference between a child that may be conceived with With IVF versus that, yeah? Well, they have had a few studies. Most of it is just finding that if you have some abnormalities that have nothing to do with science or technology or whatever, that you'll find a 5% abnormality rate in pregnancies no matter how they're conceived. We do know that there may be an increase in prematurity in a few of the patients if they're older, and we try and safeguard that by doing pre-testing on all the ladies who are over 45 if they're going to use egg donation and to make sure they're healthy and there's no contraindication to letting them achieve a pregnancy. So there really aren't any major abnormalities or anything like that. I don't think any of us would have continued to do this all these years if we found that to be true. 
We do know that sometimes if there are male factors that are significant that can be genetically inherited, we obviously tell the couple about that and know that if they have a son that they may inherit that deletion on on the Y chromosome that might have the uh, boy need to have assistance also when he gets married and want to have children. So Mm -hmm. overall, it really is for the normal population the same. There are just little vignettes of issues that may occur, but it's nothing so terrible or abnormal that we would say we shouldn't do this. The notion of our series here is to provide a voice to physicians across the country and just essentially get your passion or your voice if you had to send a message to other medical professionals, aspiring physicians or doctors out there. Is there anything that you'd like to share with our listening audience? I think that I was very fortunate to know at a young age that that's what I wanted to do, and I must have been right. I think you have to have a passion, and you have to definitely want to do medicine and be sure that you are not doing it for any other reason except that this is your passion, not because your parents said to do it or somebody suggested you do it or any other external reasons. Dealing with patients every day, it has to be a love of medicine itself and what you accomplish or what you do and wake up every day and say, wonder what the challenge will be today. And I I hope that for those physicians or medical students or even pre-med students that they make sure they think about that. It's a very long journey to get to where you're going to go. And it's going to be even longer to make sure that you stay and do the work that you've studied so hard to accomplish. Uh, You didn't take anybody's place, which, of course, that's why I said (laughs) medicine. They pretty much told us we were tokens, and I think we all, (laughs) they thought none of us would practice medicine. We surprised them. I think that's really important. I can tell you on behalf of our listening audience of health professionals and doctors, and certainly as a patient myself, I would say that you know we're grateful that you've taken that journey that you talked about and that you followed your passion. You're doing some really special work, and we appreciate it. So I'd like to thank my guest, Dr. Dorothy Mitchell-Leaf, reproductive medicine practitioner from Atlanta, Georgia, for joining us today on Voices from American Medicine as well as the Medical Association of Georgia for nominating Dr. Mitchell-Leaf to appear on this program. Dr. Mitchell-Leaf, thank you very much. I appreciate you taking the time to talk to us and to, to share your background and your passion with us. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Voices from American Medicine on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals, featuring perspectives, challenges, and triumphs from physicians currently in practice on the front lines of healthcare. Voices from American Medicine is hosted by Gary Epstein.